Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and they drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this, your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have it this day in a language that we understand. But Father, we come to you now and ask for spiritual understanding. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Teach us and train us, correct us. Lord, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Father, I pray that you would work through the preaching of your word, that you would work in the hearts of your people. Lord, make them more like Jesus. Father, encourage and strengthen them. Lord, increase their joy in the great salvation they have. Help me, your servant, O oh God, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we ask all these things in the strong name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a scene in the classic Peanuts movie, A Charlie Brown Christmas, that sets the stage for our passage this morning, I believe very well. Charlie Brown and Linus are walking along and Charlie Brown stops to lament. This is what he says. There must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and I like sending Christmas cards and I like decorating trees and all that, 
but I'm still not happy. And I always end up feeling depressed. If you remember this scene, Linus just kind of stops every now and then and looks at him and then tries to keep him going forward. But finally, Linus stops and he turns around and in a very exasperated tone, this is what he says. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. You're the Charlie Browniest of all the Charlie Browns. As we come to the end of Luke chapter five, we find Jesus still very active in his ministry and increasingly so, he's also facing a, a gathering storm of detractors. We got a glimpse of them last week. You might remember they were there when Jesus healed that paralytic man who was dropped through the ceiling. They were there accusing him of blasphemy for saying that he could forgive sin. But now in this week's passage, they begin to come out against Jesus in an even fuller force. They're full of their accusing questions and full of their self-righteous condemnation. Luke and the other gospel writers commonly call these detractors Pharisees or scribes and Pharisees, names by which they were indeed known. But it's important to note that these men were the religious leaders of the day. If you didn't know that, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well, these are the religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders of Israel. They were the continuation of the priesthood. They were those who were responsible to teach and to uphold God's law. But it might be even more helpful to see them in light of Charlie Brown, to see them as those who are managing to take this wonderful season of redemptive history, the arrival of the Messiah that they had long hoped for and long taught about. They're taking this wonderful season, this wonderful moment and turning it into a problem. We might say that they are the Charlie Browniest of all the religious leaders of the day. And the verses before us were shown four things that help us, four things that help us to understand, that help us to embrace, that help us to even apply the ministry of Jesus on behalf of his people. And for those of you who are taking notes, and I know many of you like to, these four things will make up our outline this morning. So the first we find the first one we find is Jesus calls an unlikely follower. The first point, Jesus calls an unlikely follower. From this very brief account here before you in Luke 5, we get to learn everything we ever need to know about this man named Levi. Now you might more commonly know him as Matthew. That was his other name. So Levi or Matthew. The text tells us that he was a tax collector. He's a tax collector. And because of this, most wouldn't call him a tax collector. They'd call him a thieving sinner. You see, in the days of Jesus, the Romans would subcontract the collection of revenue, the 
collection of taxes. Anyone who wanted to participate in this lucrative business would take a bid for his particular region with the Romans awarding the contracts to the highest bidder, right? Whoever bid the highest, then we'll let that person collect taxes. The winner would then pay off the amount that was owed to the government, and then they would get busy levying as many taxes as they possibly could. And anything that this tax collector collected over and above the amount that he bid, guess where that went? Into his own pockets. He got to keep it. And so if you study this time, you'll see that there were all kinds of poll taxes and land taxes and income taxes and road taxes and port taxes. Sounds familiar, right? All of these taxes are collected by these tax collectors and they become filthy rich. And filthy, as I mentioned earlier, is the word that most people used to describe them. Tax collectors were considered to be among the vilest sinners in all of Israel. Uh, These are Jewish people. They collaborated with the Romans. And so they were considered to be traitors, some even calling them enemies of God. And because they had so much contact with Gentiles, most of them were considered and even declared to be ceremonially unclean. And because of all this, they were disqualified from being a judge or a witness in court. And what happened a lot is they were often excommunicated from their local synagogue, cast out from the fellowship of the people. But here is Jesus, the one who is the very Messiah, the one who had come to purify Israel and lead her to the defeat of all her enemies. Here's Jesus strolling up to the tax booth and calling one of these very enemies to be his follower. Most would hear this in this time and say, can this be so? Of all the people, Levi, that Levi, can this be so? There's a simple truth here for us and we're confronted with this simple truth. The common expectations of the day, whenever that day is, stand in complete contrast often to the mission of the Christ, to the mission of the Messiah here on earth. While most would expect Jesus to call people who were ritually clean, people who were theologically astute, people who were socially upright, He would call those, probably even he would call the Pharisees, right? He would call them to be his closest followers. Jesus instead reaches out to the lowest of society. He reaches out to the filthiest of sinner. He reaches out to the most unpopular outcast. Those are the ones that he calls to accompany him as he ushers in the kingdom of God here on earth. Can you see yourself in the call of Levi? Can you see yourself there? I mean, maybe you're not as bad, quote unquote. Maybe you're not as bad as Levi. But if we're honest, we are more like Levi than we readily admit. I think pastor and author Philip Ryken in his commentary on Luke said it well when he said this, and I quote, he said, all of us, We sit in the toll booth of our own sin. 
trying to get as much as we can for ourselves and not caring too much what we have to do to other people to get it. And we'll keep sitting in our booths, collecting and collecting, going about our business until Jesus interrupts us in the exact same way that he interrupts Levi. So Jesus does, he interrupts Levi and he invites Levi to follow him. (laughs) Follow me. Well, here's the list. Here's the contract. Here's all the great points that are gonna happen if you follow me. No, he says, follow me. And what does Levi do? The text is very clear. It says that leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. He left everything. He just got up and he followed Jesus. That is the work of the spirit. (laughs) He's changed. In the original Greek, if you're interested in this, Luke uses what we call the active participle to indicate this continuous ongoing action. So what he's trying to convey to us is that when Levi leaves everything, all those riches, all that status and power, he leaves everything and follows Jesus. He does it for the rest of his life. Levi is called to a whole life of faith. Reminds you of Simon Peter that we talked about just a few weeks ago who left all those fish behind, all that business. Levi leaves everything behind and he gives himself to wholehearted following of Jesus. He offers his whole life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. You can have it all, Jesus. I'm gonna follow you. Isn't that what it means to follow Jesus? Not on our terms, but on his terms. Levi didn't stop there, did he? He didn't stop with the leaving and the following. Note what he does next in verse 29. You can see it there. Levi made him a great feast in his house. Emphasis on the word great. This is a big deal. A great feast. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Jesus feasts with undesirable company. Jesus feasts with undesirable company. You picture Levi entering into the joy of his salvation, worshiping Jesus. And I want you to note that at the same time, he started to witness. He didn't wait. He didn't go through a training class. And make sure he had every single argument that might come his way figured out so he could sit down point by point and take him down. He just said, come to the table. Come to the table. I want you to meet this man, Jesus. He wanted his friends to know Jesus too. So he invites everyone he knows, including his nefarious colleagues in the tax business to have a meal with Jesus. He wanted them to have the same joy he had in following Christ. Luke notes in verse 29 that Jesus is sharing this table fellowship with a company. And pay attention to this phrase, tax collectors and others. Tax collectors and others. And and apparently we get from the context that among those others, somewhere in the crowd, and understand how these feasts happen. Most of the time they're in open air type settings and all the guests would be reclining at table. That means they actually laid down and, and ate. So kids, there's a reason to tell mom and dad, it's okay if we lay down and eat tonight, right? We're just being like Jesus. That was their typical way. But usually there'd be a whole bunch of people on the outside looking in, a whole bunch of people out there looking in. And in fact, there would also be those who were coming hoping to get alms 
as money given to them or some food, something like that. But obviously, somewhere in that group are some Pharisees. Those are those detractors I mentioned earlier, the socially conservative teachers of the law who were refusing to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah because the Messiah is not gonna do something like this. You can see their disapproval and how they phrase their objection in verse 30. Look, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not others. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? In their minds, what Jesus was doing is truly scandalous. Putting yourself in their sandals, they would be wondering why any rabbi, why anyone who claimed to be the Messiah Why would he ever sit down to share a meal with unclean people, with enemies, with sinners? Meals in that day meant peace and trust, community and forgiveness. Sharing a meal meant something more than just, hey, let's come over and have some chicken nuggets and fries, right? It meant we are in fellowship because God has brought us into fellowship. How could the Messiah have peace and trust and community and forgiveness with this rabble? According to the Pharisees, these members of society weren't even eligible for this kind of fellowship. Don't go near them. Don't even spend time with them. Yeah, you know, give them the tax that is due, but wash your hands afterwards. Remember what the Pharisees had done. And we're gonna spend a lot of time as we go to the book of Luke talking more about this. So some some, some of you here, this may be the first time you hear these kinds of things. Others, you may have heard it for a long time but Pharisees had constructed a system to be followed. The teachers of the day had constructed a system that was to be followed that went above and beyond what the law of God had taught. They had a system for extra washings for purity's sake, and they had all these extra biblical laws added on. It was a system that was unattainable and largely ignored by people sitting around Levi's table right now. So out of the Pharisees' own self-righteousness and their own self-reliance, they roundly object to this kind of behavior. I mean, they're judging Jesus clearly. Why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Now, Jesus responds, which helps you understand the proximity that all this is happening, He would have been hearing what was going on. Of course, he knows the hearts and minds of everyone. And he's good about answering people's objections when they don't voice them, if you caught even that last week. But before we consider the response, I want us to stop for a moment and do some of our own self-reflection. The thing that always strikes me with this passage, and anytime we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders, I want you to note that they were not someone who was found outside the church. They weren't people on the outside of the community of Israel casting judgment inside, right? These are people who were inside the church. These were Israelites. These men were committed to God. They knew their theology. What they lacked is that they had no idea nor did they share God's vision for ministry. They didn't share it. They did not have the love that Jesus had for the lost and for the needy. So here's a question. Is there not more than a little such spirit of the Pharisees within all of us? I know it's there within me. 
It's all too easy to have a critical spirit about others, to be critical of how other people live. And it's very tempting to even think that there are some people who don't belong in church and that there's maybe even some who hardly deserve to hear the gospel. It's really easy to insulate ourselves and at the same time, puff ourselves up with our own righteousness. And then we end up just turning a blind eye and ignoring the plight of a lost and dying world all around us, the hurt and the suffering and the need. We peer out our windows and we, we come home, we pull into our garages, close our steel fortress and lock ourselves inside. And we look out our windows and we condemn our neighbors. We condemn them for their dysfunctional families. We gossip about them. We slander them with words and with thoughts, but we never lift a finger to help them. We don't try to get to know them. We pass by the drunken homeless man, curse him under our breath, but we do nothing to befriend him or to ease his pain. We complain about and even berate some of the poor members of society for their laziness, but we don't step into the problem and try to help them to take up their cause, to be advocates for them. We cry out against the injustice of abortion, but we take no steps to provide for young mothers or even adopt unwanted children into our families. We could go on and on. We are often too quick, I know I am, to denounce Pharisaic attitudes while failing to look inward. We miss the irony that we ourselves are prone to be Pharisees as well. So woe to us. Praise God, that's not true. Because if you're saved through Christ, he's working in you. He's calling you to this, even through his word right now, to be those who throw off those attitudes and to serve for his sake. If we're really like Levi, if we've been called from the toll booths of our own sin to give our lives to follow Christ, then here's what will be true of us. We will not only be happy, but we will be quick to go sit at the table with them because we know that, but for his grace, we would have been just like the others and we'll bring people to join us. So let's go back to how Jesus responds then. How Jesus responds to this criticism brings us to our third point. And it is this, Jesus defines his uncontainable mission. Jesus defines his uncontainable mission. The dilemma that's faced here is that ultimately Pharisees want Jesus to act like a doctor who avoids sick people. To act like a doctor who avoids sick people, maybe one who only does well checks and that's it. But the grace of Jesus turns this world of religiosity upside down. In fact, we can illustrate it this way as Ralph Davis, who was very helpful with this illustration, he says, these Pharisees think of life like a ladder. Righteous acts move you up the ladder, right? Moves you up towards God and your sense of well-being or purpose, right? Comes from your own place on that ladder. How close am I to God based on the good things I've done? Nothing makes you feel better then than to look down, to look down at all the other people 
those below you on the ladder, maybe even those who don't even realize there is a ladder. That's kind of what's happening here. Praise God, Jesus could not care less about this brand of righteousness. Instead, Jesus, who's the great physician, he bursts onto the scene, right? And he says, these are the ones I want to tend to. Look again at his response in verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus is on mission to seek and to save the lost. He's on mission to seek and save the tax collectors, the sinners, the losers, the, the people on the margins, the people who've made a mess of their lives. Me and you. So Jesus pulls the ladder out from under their self-righteousness and he does the unthinkable. He calls an enemy to follow him. And then he sits there and feasts with him and his friends. Jesus knows that the only people who need a doctor are sick people. And likewise, that the only people who need a savior are sinners. And if these people can't see their sin, then they certainly are gonna be blinded to the savior. This explains why Jesus is mixing with the wrong crowd. It's what doctors do. They spend time with sick people. Jesus came to bring the ultimate cure. He had come to heal people from sin, which is sickness unto death. So I don't remember who said it, but one writer said it this way, over against the Pharisaic idea of salvation by segregation, Jesus brings up the new principle of salvation by association. Jesus touched the leper. Jesus called Levi. Jesus saved you and he saved me. He took up our cause. He went to the cross for us. That is amazing grace. Amazing grace is the mercy and forgiveness of Christ abounding to those whom he sets his love on and those who respond to him in saving faith. So by feasting with Levi and all the other undesirable company, Jesus defines his uncontainable mission to tend to the righteous and to call them, excuse me, to tend to the unrighteous and to call them to repentance. So now we come to our fourth and final point. It's the fourth important thing that we find to help us remember to understand, to embrace, and to apply the ministry of Jesus. And here's what it is. Jesus calls us to unrelenting joy. Jesus calls us to unrelenting joy. It's interesting to see here that the Pharisees first criticized Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. Now, if you look at verse 33, what are they criticizing him for? For even eating and drinking at all. He can't do anything right, can he? The first criticism was related to outreach and evangelism. The second one is related to discipleship. Look there again, look down, uh, let's read it together. Verse 33, they say, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. It's like, hey, we're not alone in this. It's not just us, but those weird people who were following John, the weird guy, they even do this. We do it. But you know what? Yours eat and drink. How come they eat and drink, Jesus? 
What are they doing? Jesus responds in the way that I love how he responds. He appeals to wedding feasts. He makes the point that wedding guests do not fast while the bridegroom is present. What do you do at the wedding? You feast. And in those days, it's not just like, we're gonna have a reception after the wedding. It'll be a couple hour affair. No, these were week long feasts week-long feasts, family and friends, they, they ate together, they drank together to the joy of the happy couple. They celebrated the happy couple. But there's one thing that no one ever did at a wedding feast, and that was fast. No one fasted, not even the Pharisees, for all their fascination with fasting, which by the way is a good spiritual discipline. Jesus will speak of it positively, not too far from where we're at now but he's talking about the heart, right? The Pharisees, for all their fascination with fasting, wouldn't miss out on a good wedding reception. In fact, uh, kind of the prevailing rabbinic thought of the day that these Pharisees would have known is here's how it was written, these extra laws. All in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. That's why he's making this appeal. He knows what they're teaching. I tell you what, you have to do all this, all those extra things, all those washings, all those, you have to do all of it. Oh, except when there's a wedding feast, then just have fun, cut loose. So I was thinking of how to illustrate this because I knew at this point we're in information overload mode, right? So, and I thought, imagine a kid's birthday party, right? What do we do at those birthday parties? I mean, we celebrate, but we feast, right? Cake and ice cream. But imagine if like everyone comes and they're expecting cake and ice cream and in comes mom or dad with this platter of, now maybe you love these things, but we'll just, for argument's sake, cauliflower and broccoli, right? And then there's not even cheese dip or ranch so that you can drown it, right? It's just Greek yogurt right in the middle. There you go. Yay. Happy birthday to you. You know, not even a candle. Who would do that? Don't raise your hand. It's not meant to be condemning. Who would do that? In much the same way, Jesus is saying the Messiah is here. The bridegroom of Israel is right in front of you. Now is the time for joy. Now is the time to celebrate. And then look what he says in verse 35. Celebrate. Because there will come a time when he will be taken away. There will come a time for fasting and mourning Again, appealing to the original language, the word used there for taken away indicates an act of violence, a violent act. You see, this is the very first hint in the gospel of Luke. This is the very first hint that Jesus would suffer a violent removal by death. Jesus knew that his disciples would soon find themselves mourning, fasting, without the presence that he gives them. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, look, you're in a new situation. You're in a new era of redemptive history. Because I'm here, it's time to feast. 
And to drive this point home, he, he goes on to illustrate the point further by way of parable in verses 36 through 39. And, and he's saying that just as one would never ruin a new garment by tearing a piece from it, that would ruin the new garment, right? And then patch it to the old one, which it wouldn't match and all those kinds of things. No one would do that. And just as one would never put new wine into old wine skins, right? Because the new wine will continue to ferment and the old's probably stretched as far as it's gonna go. It'll eventually burst. That's why you put it in a new wine skin. So it has its new leather. It's able to, to expand in the same way. No one does that. So people like the Pharisees, people who fail to embrace and to understand and to apply the mission of Jesus as he intends. People cannot try and take little pieces of Jesus and patch him on their old way of thinking and doing things. The people cannot bottle Jesus up into their old systems of man-made religion and self-righteousness. Jesus didn't come to patch up their tired old ways of trying to be good enough for God. The gospel will not. In fact, the gospel cannot mix and match with man-made religion. It stands alone. That is the point of this parable that Jesus shares. Let's look at the contrast. The gospel that Jesus does bring explodes onto the scene and with it, Joy explodes into the hearts of those who are transformed by it. Even though it's a new era, it's the gospel. That's the point of the last verse. It's still good because it's the gospel that was promised in the garden in Genesis 3. And it's the gospel that is unfolded to this point in redemptive history. And Jesus says, those who believe it are gonna have transformed hearts. Just as Jesus calls an unlikely follower like Levi, so Jesus has called us. We're sinners saved by grace and through faith. And just as Jesus feasted with undesirable company, he still calls us to reach out and to serve those who need him the most. And just as Jesus defined his uncontainable mission to call sinners to repentance, so remember that he commissions us to be his ambassadors, to share his message and the ministry of the gospel with others. And with all of this, Jesus still calls us to unrelenting joy. Something that unfortunately Christians just aren't known for much these days, particularly reformed folks, the frozen chosen, right? Come on. Look how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy, joy, joy. Brothers and sisters, I just wanna give you permission. It's okay to express joy. Even in the midst of sorrow, it's okay to express joy. You might be thinking, well, well pastor, Jesus died. And he did rise from the grave and he did ascend into heaven. Okay. But did he leave us alone? What was his promise? I will not leave you nor forsake you. I'll send you the comforter, one of the same kind. I'll send him into your heart and you'll have the spirit's presence. He's given us his Holy Spirit 
his very presence that dwells within all of us who belong to him. And yes, there's a lot to weep about in this world, even in our own circumstances. There are definitely needs to fast over those things, but there is still much to rejoice in and much time to rejoice. And I understand such joy is gonna pale in comparison to the joy that we will experience there in heaven at the true and eternal wedding feast of the lamb. Yes, that joy, we can't even imagine what that will be like, but the joy that you have right here and right now, if you're in Christ, is real. So I'll end with this. Let us not hold our own competition to see who among us can be the Charlie Browniest of all the Charlie Browns. Rather, let us rejoice in the great salvation we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen, amen. and amen. Please grab your bulletins.